0: Starbird Vineyard Tours, a podcast about science fiction studies. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today um, we read uh, the essay collection To Write Like a Woman, Essays in Feminism and Science Fiction by Joanna Russ. Um, Although to be a little more precise, although Ben and I both did read the entire book, um, we've uh, highlighted A handful of essays from it that, uh, are what, like, we're really gonna talk about on this episode. Yeah, Um, it's, it's a pretty wide-ranging
1: collection, I think it's fair to say.
0: Yeah, and many of these essays, although I would say all of them in some ways, like, reflect Russ's thinking in ways that also reflect her thinking about science fiction, like, none of it's truly irrelevant, but much of it, much of the book is, is not about science fiction. Um.
1: Yeah, I think so. that it's it's important to uh, I guess keep in mind this is a chronological connection covering a large sweep of her career rather than a collection all written you know at one time or towards a single book of essays. Right? It's a it's a collection.
0: Yeah, the book came out in 1995, and it includes work I think as early as like
1: 1971. So <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, I we think should... the first one 71
0: probably also worth mentioning that this book is out of print um, although a number of the essays are available uh, for free online um, and you know as usual we always encourage people to reach out to us if they need help finding readings um, yep. but yeah it is it, you can find it used also if you want to buy a copy of the book um,
1: yeah Um, is there anything else about the book as a whole that we want to touch on before delving into the first essay? Um, can we maybe talk
0: a little bit just about Joanna Russ? Oh,
1: yeah, of course, of course.
0: Yeah, so, um, she's, like, a very well-known, uh, feminist science fiction author and also critic, um, and also just, uh, like, feminist writer in general. Um, she, uh... She, uh, probably her most famous fiction work is The Female Man, Mm -hmm. um, which actually comes up in one of these essays.
1: Yep. She's Um, also, she's a major figure in the new wave of science fiction. Uh, so she's a contemporary with, uh, Delaney and Le Guin, uh, in terms of sort of getting started into the science fiction world. Uh, As we'll see in the essays, she's a interlocutor with Delaney in serious ways, like pretty consistently. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um and she did uh she did pass away in 2011. So, mm-hmm. um she's no longer she uh I and I think she had kind of um uh stopped writing as much. Most of her work uh does seem to be from like the 70s, 80s, 90s.
1: Yeah, my impression oh and this is only a vague impression, this is a particular area of my expertise, my impression is that she had moved away from science fiction a bit towards uh, the end of her writing career as well, having taken part in, you know, this massively formative thing. Have we defined the new wave of science fiction on this podcast yet? Not
0: really, no. Um, we should I should probably at least do a little of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what would be really great would be to read some sort of history... Yeah, no, we, we should fiction. do that at
1: some point. Like, that, I think that would be very useful. But for the present, I think the important thing yeah. to sort of describe is that the new wave of science fiction is sort of a reaction to the, the classic sort of golden age of science fiction in the post-World War II era is maybe a little bit strong. It's a number of new writers uh, emerging in the, I want to say, late 60s to 70s, obviously, um, who uh we're interested in a number of different uh themes and styles of science fiction uh this and also we're interested in fantasy this is also a place where the two genres have a lot of crossover in a number of their authors uh, michael moorcock actually i think is the one who coined the term new wave but i'm not positive and he was sort of a, as an editor of a um, magazine in uh england was a major figure in sort of Creating this space for more intentionally literary or experimental science fiction and fantasy, more intentionally sort of, um, uh, I guess, um, less, more, less market driven. Maybe um, a fair way to say it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. In in certain ways, less like pulpy. Um, yes,
1: obviously they're coming. And,
0: and, sorry, go ahead. And also, I think, often um, involving, like, the idea of, like, the social sciences, as well as, um, you yes. know, like, quote-unquote, hard sciences.
1: Yeah. The, the New Wave was, in many ways, also a sort of uh, statement for social science fiction, but also for, um, for science fiction's kind of philosophy and kind of ideas that it engages with, expanding towards, uh, you know, the psychological, the social, and the, um, and the critical. Um, you know, obviously, feminist science fiction was a major part of the new wave. It was also very controversial at the time, and frankly, it still is. There are still people who are extremely grumpy about the new wave of science fiction, which is always a shock to me to discover, because I quite like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, our, our culture war does stretch back into the mid-century. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um But, uh... But yes, I am yeah. a committed new wave of science fiction apologist.
0: Yeah, I don't think... The weird thing is, like, on the one hand, you do have, like, the bizarre reactionaries who are still mad about it, but on the other hand, like... The new wave of science, the science fiction new wave, which we keep saying that way because there have been so many different artistic movements of different kinds called the new wave. Yeah, but yeah. On this podcast, we can probably <laughs> just say that. I think people will know what we mean. That, that's probably um, fair, yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, it is also, uh, like, old enough to be my parents.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's not. You know what I'm saying? It's not a new, new wave. <laughs>
0: yeah and and like science fiction has gone in all kinds of different places and whole subgenres have been invented since then. So I don't want people to think that uh basically a bunch of people came up with some new ideas in the 70s and then uh we haven't innovated since
1: then because that's I, not true. I Okay, I don't want to be super mean to science fiction as a whole because I love it dearly. <sighs> but I will say that there are certain things that the new wave did that have not really been surpassed or that that science fiction as a whole kind of backed away from in a number of ways uh you know Mm. after cyberpunk into the 90s and you can there's a ton of theories as to you know why a genre may go in one direction or another or why something may catch on but um i've definitely noticed that a lot of the really exciting recent science fiction i'm going to use an example from like 10 years ago now because time mocks us all but uh ancillary justice really cool book really interesting did a number of interesting things and also would absolutely not look out have looked out of place in the new wave of science fiction in terms of the exciting things it was doing and i think that's really yeah no i hear what you're saying like we it is a lot of a lot of the coolest stuff happening recently in science fiction and science fiction fantasy has often been very much echoes of or similar to key ideas in the new wave that didn't become as prominent as one might have hoped, despite the fact that we had this coterie of just really fantastic authors trying really cool things. So in a lot of ways, I'm hopeful that the new wave's coming back, but it does still get real, real props for being the new wave of science fiction, maintaining that aura even until the present.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true. Uh, Should we, speaking of a a kind of, like, (laughs) optimism of artistic developments in the future, I think
1: we should get into the first essay we're Incredible segue. Just A+. plus. Wow. No, that was just really good. Like, genuinely. Well, thank you. You set me up for it well. Um, (laughs) Not on purpose. (laughs) 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 Oh, no, no. Um, That was all you. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, Um, um, this essay... is, is, the essay we're going to start with is called What Can a Heroine Do? Or Why Women Can't Write.
1: Um, Coming out swinging, you might
0: say. Yeah, no, she's very powerful with her titles. Um, And it it starts with also, this is something that will become very clear about Russ. She's got so much rhetorical flair. Rhetorical Almost too much. Yeah, (laughs) like, it.
1: Yeah, no, she's... uh, one of the later essays is all about how science fiction is didactic and that's good. And she's taken that to heart.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. So, um, yeah, the essay begins quite dramatically with like a list of basically one sentence plots and they're all kind of, uh, like the plots of particular pieces of famous literature or just like extremely sort of, uh, Famous archetypal plots that don't need to be cited to any particular book, except she has swapped all the genders. Yes. Um, So, you know, the first one on the list, two strong women battle for supremacy in the early West. A young girl in Minnesota finds her womanhood by killing a bear, etc. It goes on like that.
1: I think my favorite of these is number six, Alexandra the Great. That's the whole thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a... That one, I think, is a little bit cheap because um, there's literally, like, female conquerors called the great in history. Like, come
1: on, you got to try a little now, harder than to, that to make to it be sound fair. impossible. To be fair, she's not actually trying to make them sound impossible precisely. Like, I think that I think she would be, she was well aware of that. But the point is that the reader finds it odd. And I think that one's cheap because of the name swap making for that. I I do, however, also think that one of the, of these plots that we've got here, and that she's sort of pointing out the ways in which they're gendered, I feel like Alexandra the Great is one of the most successful swapped versions of these plots, looking back from 2023.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, But ultimately, you know, her her point is made that, like, uh, so much of the narrative structure of... You know Western literature effectively,
1: although she doesn't use that phrase um if she does later, she in fact she talks really about, seems to when she talks about Russian literature not being able to uh handle some of these in in this essay actually um on page eighty nine in our version that's true she that's a good point no she does um She does recognize that there
0: may be non-Western literatures that work differently, but then she also does straightforwardly say, culture is
1: male. Yes. Um, The way she puts it on later is, uh, Western European and North American culture is not only male in its point of view, it is also Western European. So she starts off with the very, you know, general and broad statement. She does later qualify it. Yes. No, that's true. I shouldn't be uh, criticizing her too much for
0: that. Um... But yeah, then so ultimately she is uh, sort of trying to look at the like what she would describe as the myth structures of uh, you know American and uh, anglophone really literature. Yes, myth um, structures of the literature and, her
1: readers would be reading.
0: Yeah, of our literature is how she puts it, yes. and I, I think you know that's loaded, but I, I I don't think it's a terrible way of putting it. Um, and you know she kind of draws out like. There's uh, a little bit of possible narratives for women, primarily love stories, um, and then occasionally
1: as sort of a grace note, uh, stories of going insane. Well, it's not Um, quite a grace note. It's that she's arguing that more recent authors have have sort of discovered or produced the story of uh, Woman Goes Insane and been like, well, this can actually be a very feminist story in that it is a response to an unfair and unkind world so instead of the love story you can have the bell jar so she's i don't think it's just that it's like a grace note her, her point on it is more that that story will uh run out of possibilities relatively quickly
0: yeah no that's fair i think what i really meant to call it a grace note is to say it is so clear from what she's writing that the love story has been the dominant narrative for women yes um and and like it, it it seems almost like impossible to escape.
1: Um. Yes, and she's basically discussing what plots are available to women within these myth archetypes. So that's the the reason for the title. What can a heroine do? Is what kind of mythic characters can a heroine be? And there's really not a lot of them from her perspective. And I I think she's basically right. In the canon, there's many more male plots and many more agentive and active male plots, and just flipping them often runs into what she describes as sort of burlesque quality, where it becomes comedic by its incongruity. The, uh, I mean, basically the structural sexism of how these myths are presented means that not only is a male plot available to men, it is made unavailable to women without that, again, sort of disqualifying comedic air Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: but she does ultimately, like I was implying, have a certain, uh, hope for like, maybe there are things that we can say that are different from this. Um, a big part of it I think is that she's, uh, trying to maneuver around these ideas of like archetypes, even though, uh, she clearly thinks that they are very, like very powerful and kind of define literature. But I, um, you know, what she proposes is the solutions are lyricism and life, um, which both seem to me to be ways of kind of getting away from these archetypal characters.
1: Yes, no, I, I think she's very much interested in what what plots, you know, what can a heroine do? What plots are either specific to women, and she sees uh, going mad and uh, the love story as having this uh, this particular gendering in this tradition, And then says, well, those are limited, and while they have interesting things going on, that those limits are being run up against, and, you know, the love story obviously has a ton of retrograde stuff as well, but then there's the opportunity of fiction that does have non-gendered options, and two options she gives later on that I quite like are detective stories, as long as they're what she describes as limited to genuine intellectual puzzles, uh, because you know, women can solve a puzzle as well as men, and, you know, Agatha Christie exists, right? Like, there's a very clear thing there that she's referencing. Um, and supernatural fiction. Uh, because I-, I think it's very funny because she has a bit of a soft spot for Lovecraft. Uh, the line, um, potting a 12-foot-tall Batrachian with a kerosene lamp is an act that can be accomplished by either sex. <laughs> yeah, and, like, the idea that... It we- is... What? It is interesting to me that she
0: is going to point to supernatural fiction, which which does have such a relationship to, like, pulp adventure fiction, which yes. I'm sure she would say, in a heartbeat, pulp adventure fiction is, like, deeply
1: masculine. I mean, um, in uh, Seven Beauties, which we read last time, there's a whole discussion of the masculine archetype in pulp adventure fiction.
0: Right, and, and so, like, I, I'm, I think that's basically inarguable, but then, like, to point to, like, uh... Uh, Lovecraft and August Derleth's collaborated fiction as like, oh, this is something where it could be male or female is a little bit
1: like, are you sure? So I think part I think of it... there's kind of... I think part of it is that she's talking about horror when she says supernatural fiction, at least as much as yes. what we would consider fantasy. I I would be surprised if Tolkien passes muster in this particular context, even a little bit. No. But, uh, you know, Eowyn uh, notwithstanding... But, well, yeah, I had no, I, I. Yes, yes um, I didn't even think you were that much of a Lord of the Rings person I'm not, but Eowyn's very memorable And also, I've been uh, If you're studying fantasy in a literary context You have to handle Tolkien Because he's also a major like scholar in that space uh, And Oh yeah, of course And Eowyn's really memorable Because it's specifically him being pissy about Macbeth Yes. No,
0: that, the fact that she kind of just exists as an axe for him to grind against Shakespeare (laughs) is very good. Um, but okay, so, yeah, no, this is totally fair. I, um, the thing for me about this is, um, I, I basically agree with her, her arguments here, but I think that her, uh, defining out of supernatural fiction and detective fiction as, like, potential non-gendered spaces or, like, less gendered. I don't think she's saying that it is totally absent or whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, I think she is displaying uh a certain, like... Because I would say that there is no such thing as a cultural product of a patriarchy that is not, like, imbued with... Gender? With a patriarchal... With gender! <laughs> yeah, imbued with gender! Um... Turning the 4th like, of I, July, I think... and the,
1: et cetera, et cetera.
0: <laughs> Yes. I, I don't think we really have the option of truly getting outside of it, um, which is both good and bad, right? Because on the one hand, it means that, like, everything's tainted. I don't think we can escape to detective fiction. Um, but on the other hand, it does mean that, like, therefore, whatever we're going to do, it's going to be making it out of, like, the culture that we're swimming in. And so... Yeah, maybe the kind of uh, intellectualism of puzzle-style detective fiction is something that can be truly egalitarian. Like, I'm willing to try that, Um, even if I don't think you can erase, like, for example, the crime fiction in Detective Fiction. Yeah, I mean, she she does
1: literally right. Crime fiction is a different genre in parentheses, so she is trying to stake out a, a particular element of the detective story
0: yeah no she is, but I'm just uh I think basically she wants to draw bright lines here, and I think that's ultimately for a certain type of political purpose, yeah, and I would say that my my politics push me in the opposite direction, yeah, or not even my politics, my intellectual leanings, but i but sure, in a sure. way that I think is intermingled with how I think about you know oppression,
1: yeah, yeah uh, no, I think that the I mean, in the introduction to this essay, which was written many years later, she does state that she's now a bit less optimistic about the genres that she outlined here, so she went in sort of the pessimistic direction with this in the long run. Uh, But we haven't mentioned Yes, no, that's true. Sorry, go on. Uh, We haven't- sorry, I turned myself around there. I said go on. I I was going to let you go, so it's (laughs) fine. (laughs) she does go on to describe a third category of story, which is science fiction.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason that she's not just going, oh, detective fiction, supernatural fiction, and science fiction, is that I think she sees detective fiction and supernatural fiction as kind of fundamentally having one narrative that she's got some hope for, whereas science fiction, she kind of outlines a number of different narratives that science fiction can have. Which she also sees as, like, patterns from medieval literature.
1: Yes, this Um. is—she's very taken, and this shows up in another essay as well, with a kind of throwaway comment made by Darko Suvin, a major uh, science— very major science fiction studies figure, um, who—I think we mentioned in the last episode— who uh, apparently said at, uh, like, some conference or something— that science fiction is medieval in certain ways, and she's clearly been turning that over in a number of these essays, um, and has claimed it for her own, since I don't know if he went on to write a ton about it. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, when she cites it in What Can a Heroine Do?, she says that he said this in conversation, and in a paper unpublished as of this writing. Um, Presumably, eventually, that paper was published, but I don't know what it's called.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have not run across Um, it, so... Yeah, um... But yeah, she also says that science fiction seems to me to provide a broad pattern for human myths, even if the specifically futuristic or fantastic elements are subtracted. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, she really
0: doesn't see science fiction as being defined around, like... Certainly not around, like,
1: NOVA. Yes, Um, or technology. Yeah, although
0: she also does... At the same time, in other essays, I think we will see her
1: see science fiction as deeply connected to, like, real-world techno-science. See, the thing is, I would argue that she wants to divide—we'll get to this, but I'd argue that she sees science and techno-science as different categories, or rather, that she'd like to pull Mm. the techno off the science and get it the science. And we'll see this in some of her examples in later things, but I think it's useful to think about because—and I think this is also actually a quality of the— uh, of the new wave of science fiction, of the new wave, um, is that a number of them are very interested in science in uh, more theoretical and sort of uh, symbolic, abstracted uh, ways, which is actually very similar to how the modernists, like Virginia Woolf, were interested in, say, quantum physics and various other discoveries of their era, less as a um, less as a, as a source of technological tools and engineering and more as a source of ways of thinking about the universe.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, do you want
0: to then move on to her actual, uh, cause of course, um, what can a heroine do? Uh, it's not, it, it is really about, um, like literature in general in a way that I think, and then obviously touches on science fiction at the end, but, uh, there's really two essays in this. Well, two of the essays we're talking about rather are really about science fiction.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think think... there's a a little bit more I want to get into here, which is that she does talk a little bit about this idea of science fiction as providing a a space for new myths, and like a a context in which new myths that represent the modern condition in some way can be found, Um, and... Also that these are, like, more collective and didactic, less individualistic, less, uh, less masculine, very clearly, except for space opera. Space adventure with ray guns she's very down on. Um, but there's also this very fun line at the end here that I think is worth bringing up, which is, um, you know, these are talking about the experience we have now instead of the literary myths we have inherited, which only tell us about the kinds of experiences we think we ought to be having. This may sound like the old cliché about the Soviet plot of Girl Meets Boy Meets Tractor. And why not? Our current fictional myths... I mean, you know...
0: (laughs) Sorry, I just... (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a good question.
1: (laughs) Uh, Our current fictional myths leave vast areas of human experience unexplored. Work for one, genuine religious experience for another, and above all, the lives of the traditionally voiceless, the majority of whom are women. And so we see a synthesis of her uh, her feminist approach to literature and literary myths with a um, with science fiction and its uh, sort of uh, I mean, it's it's techno scientific uh, conception of the world. It's uh, image of the world is in flux or changing towards some kind of future. And I think it's very cute to, uh, say, this is kind of like that Soviet plot, boy meets girl meets tractor. Yes. No, it's very cute.
0: Um, I, I believe, by the way, that she always considered herself a socialist, but I don't think she was like a, um, certainly I don't think she was like a, a, a Marxist-Leninist in the sense of, like, aligned with the Soviet Union in the 70s. I think we'd be able to tell from her writing if that was her yes, perspective. Yes, I, I,
1: I think that would show up a little more. I, I think she was more of an American socialist. But uh, the. Um, but in this case, she is saying, you know, sure, Soviet cinema, I think that's referencing Soviet cinema, but I'm not positive. But the idea that Soviet artworks and, uh, tends towards this sort of, like, uh, didactic social realism that's like, we will produce a better life by industrializing and communism. And her response is, you know, that doesn't actually sound so bad as a kind of thing to write about.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's, she's very just, like, open to possibility at the end of this essay.
1: Yeah. Uh, she also specifies that when she talks about the traditionally voiceless, she doesn't mean descriptions of their lives— She wants fictional myths growing out of their lives and told by themselves for themselves. And again, while I don't think that's like quite the precise moment of discourse in science fiction publishing, that was like the last 10 years in a lot of ways. That was a major thing that was being pushed for. Again, these are ideas that show up in the new wave and have more recently had a very wide impact on science fiction publishing. Yeah, she
0: is basically defining hashtag own voices there. You're totally right. Yeah. Um.
1: I mean, let's say uh, Avant La Lettre, which I probably pronounced wrong. And, you know, this is like a throwaway line in an essay from 1971. But again, I do think that one of the things really interesting about the new wave is how much of its experimental elements have much more recently started to catch on in the larger mainstream. Yeah. Huh. that ar- does basically ar- right. get me through this essay if you don't have anything else.
0: No, no, I'd love to uh move on to the next one we're going to talk about is speculations, the subjunctivity of science fiction. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um which is a direct response to about 5750 words. Um she she quotes uh a big chunk of it. Yep. Right yep. at the beginning of her
1: essay. She quotes um, a chunk that I think everyone, including me, quote from uh, about 5,750 words, where Delaney describes I mean, yeah. subjun- subjectivity.
0: Yes. Um, and what she's doing in this, uh, fundamentally, I think, is trying to um, describe science fiction in response to what Delaney says. Um, and in contrast to what she sees as a lot of, like,
1: academic... Uh, perspectives on what science fiction is that are really insufficient yeah this is Um, this is something that actually shows up a lot again in the new wave but i would say since then and before then as well where there's a common claim by science fiction readers and theorists that standard academic reading practices and analytical practices for talking about literature cannot respond to science fiction correctly and i don't think it's wrong i just think that a number of these versions can be a bit simplistic the most common one and one that i think delaney often puts forward is you need to know the science and think about it as material science rather than as metaphors in order to understand science fiction and knowing the science is not actually that required for science fiction having a vague sense of the science might be more accurate but reading it not as metaphor is definitely extremely useful. Yes. Um,
0: and, you know, I, I would say ultimately the, the conclusion she comes to, her description of what science fiction is, is that it is this kind of uh, constant uh, polyphonic um, like c- uh, creation of multiple levels of subjunctivity that the reader kind of moves between um, and in this way, uh, this, this sort of, uh, way in which it can't be simplified down to one particular perspective on, like, Possibility. is this, is this
1: possible? Yeah. Um, she compares that to postmodern literature. Yeah. Something that um, I think is interesting here is that this is kind of a rebuttal to Delaney or its response to Delaney. Uh, since Delaney is very much putting forward that your standard science fiction is a single subjunctivity that's sort of stable across it and i think part of what's going on is that russ is kind of arguing that that science fiction isn't very good at being science fiction that like the potential of science fiction its real capability lies more in the realm of its complexity the way it confronts the reader with changes in possibility Uh, effectively the post the postmodern science fiction novel is more science fictional than, you know, Asimov's golden age robot stories.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think she basically says that. Um, and, uh, y- you know, I do think that she, ultimately, it's only really space opera that she uh, sort of sections out, um, although I guess not in... No, that's that's in in the essay essay, yeah. I essay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing about space opera here, sorry.
1: Yeah, um. I think that the um, I think that the implication here is more is more present than like the explicit. Here is the good science fiction. Here is the bad. But she does talk about the virtues of science fiction as lying in that uh, that play of suspension of disbelief in the tricks that are similar to things that uh, for postmodern fiction Nabokov is one of her big examples, um, and the. Uh, the the line she uses is, science fiction writers conceive of the relation between possibility and impossibility very differently than the writers we are used to. Their work has an analogous shifting paradoxical quality. And I think that shifting paradoxical quality is not something that your average, you know, Heinlein or Asimov reader would necessarily consider to be present in those stories.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. Um... And uh, the, the the interesting thing here about this um, this claim about the the com- inherent complexity of science fiction is that um, this is something which I I think it is interesting. Like this is a place where you really have to draw the connections between essays because this at first I think really seems to sit oddly with her idea of first of all, with her idea of, like, literature as myths and archetypes in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, uh, her comparison of, her, her sense that science fiction is didactic, her comparison of it with medieval literature, um, you know, uh, medieval literature is is kind of the opposite of, or, or rather, it, like, in didacticism, right? Didacticism implies a certain kind of simplicity. But then science fiction is both... Uh, like constantly shifting and didactic. And
1: that's a very interesting and complex sort of beast that she's created at this point. It is, but she does try to square this circle towards the end. She says, um, uh, you know, in in part five of this essay, uh, In any fiction, a sequence of words may be simultaneously a real person, a character, a mood, a structural element, a figure, as in a painted landscape, and an allegorical or political or social idea, for example, part of an abstract didactic statement. Modern fiction is yes. obviously so. In modern fiction, she means what we call postmodern fiction, Nabokov, etc. Um, we've been using postmodern a bit loosely, which is, I think, reasonable. But, uh, and that simultaneity means that you have these shiftings of levels, despite the fact that the text is not itself particularly complex. In fact, she explicitly says, much of Lolita, much of Pale Fire, all of Gennett's novels, are actually simpler than they appear to be. Although the impression of mysterious complexity is also part of the book, and one can't get rid of that either,
0: yes, yeah, no, absolutely, and i this is a little bit of a uh i think this is a controversial take to be like, yeah, these novels are are simpler than they appear, yes. but um but i I think, yes, you're basically right, like uh essentially she does reconcile these things at the end, but um I think it's not entirely clear that she is. Reconciling something, um, without kind of having read the previous essay. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, um, the previous essay was previous. Uh, what can a heroine do is, she says, written in 71, published in 72, and then this one, speculations, uh, published in... 73. Uh, 73.
1: Yes. Yeah, we're going through these in the order they were published. Yes. Which uh, is not the, the order part. they are in the book. Yes and the um i think there are a few interesting things i want to outline in terms of specifically the idea of different schools of critique failing to understand science fiction the, the funniest one to me is her saying uh that um psychoanalytic uh critique uh has to read science fiction as like um grotesquerie Uh, that it must be sick, that it's a horrifying display of psychoanalytic uh, perversion because these things that aren't real in these weird new contortions reveling in their strangeness, and, you know, you're invited to have a bit of a laugh at uh, at the theoretical academic critic who can't understand science fiction, which, again, is a pretty, again, reliable element of critique in this period. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um... I do think it's very very funny that she's saying this about uh psychoanalysis at the same time as I think you know uh postmodern psychoanalysis is be- is concluding that like everything is sick. <laughs> so it's like, oh don't worry, Russ, like they're not just coming for you.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not that they're... Cu- she's not worried that they're coming for science fiction. She's not a Bradbury. No, she's uh, no, laughing no. at them for failing to understand, for failing to be able to read something that, you know, implicitly, uh, you know, a teenage pulp magazine reader can read. And I think that that's yes. kind of the... The reason I'm a little bit skeptical or try to restrain myself from going, haha, yeah, critics who aren't in science fiction studies can't read science fiction. Because first of all, it's like, yeah yeah i mean yes There, there's specialized skills for for doing this there's specialized things that science fiction readers develop that's true of any genre but there's also a certain element in here of superiority of the sense of like oh these academics they don't have the the first clue what's going on here they just can't handle this and i think russ has a bit of an axe to grind on that point
0: yeah and like when i say you know they're 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 coming for you or whatever like obviously yeah no she's not like afraid um but i do think there's a certain sense of like anxiety about the fact that reading methods that she thinks do not work on
1: science fiction seem to be increasingly dominant in the academy yeah Um, i mean now to be fair i don't think it's I think that all of the reading methods that have ever been dominant in the Academy are being perceived as uh, insufficient to the task. I don't think that the newer psychoanalytical ones are actually different from, like... I mean, the new critics get a lot of her scorn, or, like, the the allegorical reading and so on. Those all fail as well, and she's pretty clear that they fail. So I don't think she's anxious about a change. I think she's saying there needs to be a change for science fiction to be accessible by the Academy, and frankly... I'm not sure she's so much advocating that the Academy learn to read science fiction so much as we ignore the Academy's opinions on science fiction, if you see what I mean.
0: Yes. No, I do see what you
1: mean. And that is informed by her being very critical of uh, the way feminism has developed in the Academy and become more more sort of complexified and elaborate and, in her opinion, less politically useful, uh, which appears in a number of the later essays in the book. So I am to a little to a certain extent bringing in ideas from elsewhere to help explain this phenomenon
0: yeah yeah but you know
1: they i in the makes same sense. book
0: yeah um this is slightly askance of what we're talking about but i think it's maybe worth saying if you get your hands on the book i see no reason not to read all the essays cuz they're all extremely interesting um at least some of them i
1: would say are offensive <laughs> Uh, they're, um, <laughs> they're extremely from the seventies. Yes. Like,
0: uh, we don't need to go into detail about that right now. Cause we're in the middle of talking no, about we, something No, we don't. Else, I'm but... just,
1: I, I guess my, my reaction to that is just sort of, of course they are. They're from the seventies. We knew what we were getting into when we picked up the book. Okay. But
0: we're not going to find, we, I think are not going to find anything quite as hair raising as the uh, letter at the end of this book, when we read Darko Suvan, uh, mm-hmm.
1: probably the, not. The, but I think the, it's
0: because the... of his tone.
1: That's what I'm saying. Okay, Her tone, yeah, yeah. Yes. and I, I
0: yes, she... I am not
1: saying this is a bad thing. Yes, but she, she is willing. She's willing to write a Jeremiah, ad, which, okay, no, Darko suvin does also write a couple of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, it's the pronunciation of that, right? Yes, it is. Thank you. Uh, Darva also writes a couple Jeremiah's, Jeremiads, and we will get to those eventually, but they are, they are, I mean, frankly, they're far stuffier and more, like, uh, academically worded as opposed to just uh, straightforwardly saying something is stupid.
0: Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, is, like, mm-hmm. she does not beat around the bush at all. Um, and, when, and when I say that uh, some of the essays are offensive, it's not actually because she's so direct. Um, it's just because... She feels she can talk about Lovecraft without without any mention of race, which is just like you can't. Oh, do is that, that is that what?
1: Hmm, that I didn't think that was what you were upset well, on the
0: fascination. Well, I'm also upset about the fact that she thinks she can say the N
1: word in the context of <laughs> in talking a about essay. Huck Finn. In the context of talking about Huck Finn, I do want to point that out. Yes, Not saying it's okay. Yes, she is. I just want to be clear that she didn't just drop a hard slur for no reason.
0: Yes, no, it's true. But it's still... She still printed the N-word in this book.
1: In um, 95, yeah. But,
0: yeah. Um, but no, I mean, that is just, like, one particular moment where I'm like, don't do
1: this, Joanna, please.
0: <laughs> um, let's let's but stop excoriating
1: find... her for being from the 70s. And... Oh, okay, yes. No, you're totally right. I, I just, um you're you're anxious about yeah, people I, I, picking this up and reading this on our recommendation and running across landmines I yeah
0: i am i just i also think that it's worth it's not just that I'm like anxious although I guess you're right that I am but i I don't know anyway um i I think also I was maybe a little bit done with speculations
1: although as always yep. i I'm always cutting you off, so what no, no, no i'm I'm genuinely, I think we're done with speculations. I don't have anything there that won't come up in, uh, towards an aesthetic of science fiction, which I believe next on the docket.
0: Yeah. Oh, actually, okay. I, this time I do am the person who has one more thing. (laughs) I'd just like to read the last two sentences of speculations. Sure. Um, where she's sort of summing up this idea of like polyphonic fiction. A story is closer to the interaction of magnetic fields than to what we think of as life. And perhaps life is too.
1: It's a good Boom. last line. <laughs> what, what
0: what does that mean? I mean I, I have some guesses, but it's it's just so audacious, right? Like I she's trying to say something about how like life is not straightforward and narrative the way that narratives are. Um oh. But the idea that life is closer to a magnetic field than what we think it is is just so
1: I mean, uh, that's also an extremely science fiction dork way of uh, talking about things where it's like, well, maybe fundamental forces and, like, the magnetic fields that are interacting even now inside your brain are actually, like, vital and important, and important part of life, and the, the gloss on it where we don't think about those, maybe that's not as real as those magnetic fields. I feel like that's in there as well.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. I was about to say something like, only a science fiction writer.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, no, also, various postmodern novelists of this period and modern novelists of, the of like, that general area and things like that would also say that. No, that's true. That.
0: Yes, no, that's that's a good point.
1: Um. Unless my modernist okay. uh, studies friends descend upon me for misrepresenting their weird authors. <laughs> okay, uh... But yeah, towards an aesthetic of science fiction.
0: Let's tally go. tally Um, and this... This one was uh, published in seventy five. Yep. Um. So oh. this is the kind of the we have kind of uh, gone in chronological order with specifically the like theoretical
1: essays. And yep. This is the last of those. Yep. Um. Uh, and it does start with again something that's very much like uh, like something Delaney has often said, which is: Is science fiction literature? Yes. Can it be judged by the usual literary criteria? No. Yeah, it's interesting
0: you say that's Something Delaney has said because I think, in substance, it is. But his way of saying this is, is to science
1: fiction
0: that science is not fiction literature. Is not... Yep, yeah, yeah. That is not literature. <laughs> yeah, but but nonetheless, Sorry, I, I think I you are you were right sniping. that when he
1: <laughs> very when he fairly. says
0: when he says science fiction is not literature, he does mean it cannot be judged by the usual literary criteria. Yes, but yes, anyway, where like
1: he's <laughs> drawing the line of what literature is? Yes, oh <sighs> yes, but um. So, yeah, um, this
0: this essay, I I, I would essentially say, is arguing that science fiction has its own uh, distinct aesthetic qualities and Mm -hmm. going on to kind of like name and and analyze several of these um, as a way of, you know, going towards uh,
1: a general idea of what science fiction looks like or perhaps Mm -hmm. an aesthetic of science fiction. Um, uh, again this idea that science fiction is medieval in the sense that it is didactic and even some, and in a certain sense quasi religious uh comes up Yeah and
0: also um also like uh collective or um almost uh like individuals are sort of examples of a collective at least she argues that this is true of science yes, fiction. Yes
1: that the the, um, sci- the good science fiction protagonist uh is the everyman or every woman who represents a category of person that exists in this particular kind of future, even if they are a heroic example of that, the heroic every woman, uh, it is not primarily about individual lives led, but as a lens towards the larger society, which is, I think, a really interesting argument, in part because that's often how we read, say, the Victorian novel, the most famously individualistic sort of style of novel, because we now do not live in that society, and thus what were individuals once are examples now.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true, and, like, if that's the case, then I think it makes perfect sense to suggest that science fiction is already in that mode, because it's already about a world we don't know.
1: Yeah, and every character Um. in science fiction is helping you flesh out a world you don't know in some respect, unless it's, like, the minimal science fiction of we have a new invention today
0: yes (laughs) um and uh there's so so she kind of lists and these are the elements of science fiction that she she sees as like pseudo-medieval um Mm -hmm. but then uh you know she she also has there are a few other kind of uh qualities that she brings out um one is Science fiction, like medieval painting, so this is the separate kind of thing, addresses itself to the mind, not the eye. So, that idea being that, um, you know, what's being depicted is not literal, um, it is something that
1: you're being asked to, like, imagine. Um, Mm -hmm. And also that it has a certain element of the thought experiment, that the value of it is not merely in the sort of immediate aesthetic impression of, like, you know, color, shape, etc., but of the ideas that are being uh, inscribed there. The idea as hero is a term that we're not going to see... We're going to see more than a few times in the future talking about science fiction studies, but the idea as hero is a term that shows up a lot in the discussion of science fiction in this era and later. Yes.
0: Um, There's also just a few that she fires off real quick that I think are worth uh, just, like, reading. These are almost, like... Her, her, She just says, quickly, si- uh, paragraph break for each sentence. Science fiction is the only modern literature to take work as its central characteristic concern. Except for some modern fantasy, e.g. the novels of Charles Williams, science fiction is the only kind of modern narrative literature to deal directly, often awkwardly, with religion as process, not as doctrine. Um, science fiction deals with epistemology. Uh, that was me summarizing the, the last sentence. But yeah, she basically lists these three things that science fiction does that ostensibly nothing else or very little else does in current fiction. Um, and doesn't... These ones, she doesn't feel the need to elaborate on them, really.
1: No, no, they're just... There's often, I think, in how she discusses modern fiction a very strong sense that, uh... she's keeping up with it, she's well-versed in it, and she assumes her reader will be as well, which, you know, maybe that would have been more true, uh were we in the 70s when this was published? But since we're not by a few decades, it's a lot harder to judge the relationship between the things being stated in rea- and the realities of novels on the ground, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I think the way that I look at this essay is almost, um, like, o- almost kind of a collection of things that science fiction can do that are interesting, um, because I I just don't believe her when she says that it's the only modern literature to take work as its central characteristic concern. First of all, because I don't think it's the only literature for that to be the case. Like, there are social realist novels. Um, but then also that I don't believe that's true of all science fiction. However, I find it very plausible, and I'd love, I, I wish she'd explored it at more length, the idea that science fiction has like a distinctive relationship to work, um,
1: yeah,
0: which I think makes a certain amount of sense. Although in my head I would route that through like the idea of technology and what that has to do with work. Oh, and but Russ, she wouldn't approve. <laughs> no, she kind of rejects the idea of like any like uh, critical analysis of technology. She well, doesn't
1: like that idea. To be fair to her, she doesn't mean a critical analysis of individual technologies. What she means is the category of technology and, like, technology studies she thinks is vacuous. Yes,
0: and this is the subject, basically, of the third essay in the volume, SF and Technology as Mystification, which, despite the title, does not really talk about SF that much.
1: Not much, Um. no. um, You can sort of see the implications, but it is mostly talking about... Uh, I mean, it's mostly criticizing academics for getting, uh, for doing technology studies when, in her opinion, the thing they're actually talking about that alienates and shuffles society, et cetera, et cetera, of which technology is merely one sort of uh, one frame of avoiding talking about it is capitalism. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's basically that essay. Here. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's a... No, there is an extended diatribe about how Star Wars is bad science fiction, so it does talk about science fiction a bunch.
0: Yes, oh, that's true. She's got... Yeah,
1: oh, my God. Um, she hates Star Wars, and she likes Star Trek. She... Which is, like... She tolerates Star Trek. Like Tolerates, that's, yeah, that's a be- The The introduction even says that she thinks TNG is uh, less... deserves less plaudits for its attempts to be progressive than the original series, because against the background of the 90s, it's so uh, so much less. So even the faltering steps of the original series were in a context that gets a lot more credit from her. So she is very critical of Star Trek. No, that's true. You can't just say that she likes Star Trek. But Although she really one does get like the Star impression...
0: <laughs> And one does get the impression that she could sit down and watch a Star Trek episode and
1: have a good time. Oh, yeah, no. One has the impression that she likes watching Star Trek. Yes, we get the impression she is a fan of Star Trek in some sense. And frankly, we get the impression that she tried to enjoy Star Wars and thought bits of it were cool, but the overall uh, effect of it was to make her deeply unhappy. Yes. Uh, But in any case, I do want to get back to this essay where... I think part of the way that she talks about sort of connecting to work which i think is implicit is when she talks about what criticism of science fiction will have to look like um and i don't think she's wrong this is what some criticism of science fiction looks like but i do think that it's taking a lot of science fiction sort of self-valorization of the period very straightforwardly it's things like It will perforce employ an aesthetic in which the elegance, rigorousness, and systematic coherence of explicit ideas is of great importance. It will therefore appear to stray into all sorts of extra-literary fields, metaphysics, politics, philosophy, physics, biology, psychology, topology, mathematics, history, and so on. The relations of foreground and background that we are so used to after a century and a half of realism will not obtain. Instead, they may be reversed. The idea being that Effective criticism of science fiction will not talk about the characters and their actions and their personalities and their believability, but the, like, technical believability of the setting, the, like, the degree to which scientific ideas and historical uh, analogies and philosophical concepts are being constructed into the setting, and... Frankly, I think there is a lot of science fiction criticism that tries to do this, and most of it is basically just arguing over whether or not the hovercrafts would work.
0: Yeah, like, I don't think that this is what she means at all. No, it's not. what you just described does make me think of, like, you know, uh, fucking plot hole analysis, right? Yeah,
1: the Um. plot hole analysis being the really bad version of it, but I'm also thinking of, like, there are science fiction fans who approach a science fiction work in terms of what are the nova at work in this and how well supported are they and how much, basically, how much cheating had to be done to make this game playable. This is an element of the ludic science fiction in uh, where, um or where Wells was quoted talking about how the game is to bend the rules only in ways that the reader won't notice to make exciting things possible and then the reader's game is to try and catch where the rules were bent or accept that this has been done well and the, like the illusion has been maintained and that's that kind of criticism that kind of readerly approach where the focus is on whether the sciences have been done well technically aligns with elements of what russ is talking about here but where russ sees this as like you know this grand scope Intellectual journey towards a better understanding of the universe, or towards a deeper and more interesting relationship with science fiction, it often becomes a flattening kind of game instead. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I think to give her a little bit of credit, when she says criticism of science fiction, she describes what criticism of science fiction should look like, but she does then go on to do it.
1: Yes, I'm not saying that
0: we're gonna. I'm not. Saying we're gonna this... talk about two. Essays where she basically does her yes. theory in action, and I, I think it's, uh, like essentially the fact that some of what she predicts makes us think of things we really dislike. Uh, I don't want that to get buried in the fact that like we're about to see her actually do what she said. after. Oh, yeah, to no, do, no. And it
1: doesn't look like that at all. I, my point is not that I think that Russ is falling down here. My point is merely that I think she has a lot of optimism for a. Uniquely science fictional mode of criticism that has abandoned a lot of traditional literary criticism for its own nuanced scientific approach and she has a very she has very much the idealistic version of this whereas I think that that abandonment of What I'm just going to straightforwardly call like classic critical humanities classic humanism leads actually to other places as well. It does not necessarily involve picking up a class consciousness, a uh a feminist critique along the way. You can do it without that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I I I agree with that. And and I think that like I mean, one of the things that's a little paradoxical about this, right, is that it from where you and I stand, like Russ is canonical to science fiction studies yeah, and in some ways also canonical to, like, feminist criticism. And so, like, if her perspective was, uh, you know, all previously, like, all, all of the, like, methods of literary criticism yeah, yeah. that currently exist are insufficient to respond to science fiction of this moment, like, I think a kind of necessary extrapolation from that is, okay, well, what... Surely, new criticisms that are that respond to current moments will continue to need to be developed yeah um yeah, no, and I think fair. uh the fact that essentially she is now part of a lineage in this despite the fact that she kind of tried to reject uh, like a canonical intellectual lineage,
1: yeah, I mean um, to be fair, i don't think she'd have a problem with that because she's not calling for a totally like delineate i don't Delineated is not the word I was looking for there. She's not calling for a total, uh, I guess, deracination of individual critics into totally autonomous beings. She is calling for new traditions of criticism. So in a certain sense, you can just say yes. she succeeded. Those exist. Science fiction studies is won. And that fight was just completely won by the idea that you do need a specific science fiction studies in the fact that we now have academics doing it. And I think that yes, would no, be that's true. fair.
0: Yes, Um, but I think at the same time, she might also see that as a type of co-optation, because Oh, given her essay at the
1: end of this book, yes, 100% she would. (laughs) Yes,
0: so, you know, (sighs) you win some, you lose some, I guess. I
1: was literally going to say that exact phrase. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I do Uh, want to quote her one more thing in there that I think is really good. Yeah? Which is... Please, please. Traditionally, human concerns will be absent. Protagonists may be all but unrecognizable as such. What in other fiction would be marvelous will here be merely accurate or plain. What in other fiction would be ordinary or mundane will here be astonishing, complex, wonderful. Parentheses. For example, allusions to the death of God will be trivial jokes, while metaphors involving the differences between telephone switchboards and radio stations will be poignantly tragic. Stories ostensibly about persons will really be about topology. Erotics will be intracranial, mechanical, literally, and moving. And that's the place where I'm like, you had highly experimental goals for science fiction, and not a lot of that exists.
0: Yeah. I do think, not in every particular, but I do think the female man is kind of like this.
1: No, I mean, Um, this is... What I was going to say is, she's describing some of the really interesting works of the new wave here. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, in a lot of ways, I I honestly, when I think of the new wave of science fiction, Russ is, like, the person who jumps to the forefront for me uh, in terms of, like, intensely experimental fiction, intensely science fictional, and, uh, you know, just sort of a definitional figure of the era— and I think this is an example of why. Yeah, yeah, I know, totally. <sighs> also, I will say, she does say, some beginnings have been made in outlying aesthetics of science fiction, particularly in the work of Lem and Suvin. And I think that, uh, you know, Metamorphoses of Science Fiction was either published or on its way to publication uh, when she wrote this. So, yes. just look it's it effectively started science fiction studies as a or it kick-started the development of a science fiction studies academic space a field uh so yes she is correct about who's uh currently doing that and that she is part of a movement that is doing that
0: yeah no i think that's true and
1: Yeah, I do also think that uh, her sort of concern that she puts forward at the end here, which is, if the literary critics misperceive or misconceive their material, the results will be to discourage readers, discourage science fiction writers uh, who are as serious about their work as any other writers, destroy the academic importance of the subject itself, and thus impoverish the whole realm of literature, of which science fiction is a new but a vigorous and growing province, and I think we can fairly say that didn't happen. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's true. I mean, I think that she here overestimates the effect of literary critics on the reading public. I, I mean, you're not um. wrong.
1: <laughs> you're just not wrong. <laughs> uh, I, sorry. No, no. it's Like, <laughs> um, oh, no, fair. Um, and like, you know, I feel the same way. I think that the idea that literary critics producing kind of thoughtless ways of thrusting science fiction into their fields i am also irritated but by this when it happens i also feel the need to push back against it but i think my position is basically those critiques don't tend to become how people think about works of science fiction unless they're actually really clever in some other way they tend to just sort of slide out of visibility the main effect is that uh, literary critics who don't do science fiction tend to not touch science fiction at all except uh um via like fan studies or something like that, which is a whole different approach to literary analysis anyways, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, not a bad and thing. I think
0: you know like a uh, uh some sort of uh you know something that's happening in terms of like the academic world, what people are writing in academic journals that doesn't have to directly influence like readers and publishers, oh yeah, no, to matter, yeah, you know, yeah, um.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. I'm trying to find anything else in this essay. It's a dense little essay. That's true. It's
0: not that long, but it's got a lot going on.
1: Yep, yep. Uh, I don't think I'm finding anything else immediately. Um, I do note that her examples are often drawn from Delaney or Le Guin. Uh, There is definitely a sense in uh, Russ's writing here of like the new wave as a historical moment and movement that she is also responding to, which I think is really cool. Like that is honestly one of the things I'd recommend these essays for is looking at which authors she thinks of as important in the moment and representative of science fiction in the past and present is a really useful uh, perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. (sighs) Want
1: to move on to the next one?
0: Yeah, let's do that. Um, I don't know that we actually completely decided. Uh, are we going to do recent feminist utopias first or on the yellow wallpaper? I don't know that it matters let's, as much.
1: Let's do recent two different things. Mm, actually, on the yellow wallpaper, we can do pretty quickly, and it's very directly related to this previous uh, essay. Yeah. All right. Let's let's do that. Great. So um, on the yellow wallpaper is about the yellow wallpaper. You might say it's on yeah. the yellow wallpaper.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and it's it's specifically a response to a another essay, uh, critical analysis of the yellow wallpaper,
1: um, do we and need to, it is. Do we need to ex- explain the yellow wallpaper? Or are we assuming that our audience has run into this or can wiki it?
0: Um, I think we can assume that people can look up a summary of on of the yellow wallpaper. Yeah, it's, it's, basically, it's a
1: very well known story from its era. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and, I mean, what she's basically doing here is, uh, I mean, so her fundamental argument is that the analysis in this other essay is impoverished, um, because the writer does not appear to have any familiarity with the genre structure of a ghost story. Yes. Um, and is attempting to take everything, like, very literally in a real sense of realism, and that
1: is not what's happening in the story. Yeah, it is an example of a literary critic who does not have a backing in the genre in question, in this case, uh, the ghost story, or who is unwilling to perceive that this is a genre story because it is considered a very important literary story, and is therefore, in their deeper explications of the structure of the story, just missing some really big and obvious things. I think an example that really stood out to me is... The room in which the protagonist of the yellow wallpaper is confined has sections of the wallpaper that have been picked at, and odd markings on furniture, and even has some, like, metal loops and bolts in the walls. And the ghost story reader, on hearing that a disused room in the top of a big old house has, like, signs of previous confinement in it, Will quickly assume that someone was stuck there, and now their spirit is haunting it that this is this was like a uh effectively a prison cell for someone for some reason, and that directly relates to the themes and ideas of the story, whereas if you insist on seeing it as oh, this must have been a nursery or a bedroom or the kind of normal rooms that exist in normal literature rather than the like weird gothic spaces of a ghost story. You're missing this huge opening clue,
0: yeah, yeah, that is basically her big argument here,
1: um, yeah, and more generally that the the ghost story version has a lot more to say in terms of its like feminist feminist claims than the strictly realist version would yes and and
0: that is kind of ultimately her motivation, as she lays out in the last like paragraph that um essentially she feels that this and i, I believe she's responding sp- to a psychoanalytic yeah criticism of the yellow wallpaper and she she basically feels that psychoanalysis um psychoanalytic like feminism is uh like an ideological dead end um and that it uh you know it 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 is she sees it as defanging this work of its like real feminist content and uh, you know that's a problem because a a so called feminism that is uh, allowing the academy to kind of like
1: faff about without
0: really under yeah and uh like and like preventing real understanding.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's that's her uh, concern about this essay. She's replying to
1: yes. Uh, also, part of it is that she thinks that the essay is trying too hard to actually either diagnose or criticize the undiagnosability of the uh, madness that overtakes the protagonist, Um, that the psychoanalytic tradition is like, all right, so where are these symptoms coming from? And she's like, well, they're coming from ghost possession stories because this is the kind of thing that happens in a ghost story. And when you understand that genre connection you realize you shouldn't be trying to say, well, why is she specifically crawling about on all fours? Is that a result of, um, you know, is that like meant to be infantile? And she argues, well, no, if you look, there's a number of ghost stories where someone possessed acts in a bestial manner by crawling about on all fours. and And that creeping has a very, I mean, it's much creepier than infantile. It has a very different meaning. And creeping, creeping, creeping is like a phrase from the yellow wallpaper. It shows up often. There's this this image of the creeping woman and it's creepy. It's, it's, it's gothic. (laughs) It's very powerful. Um, but if you, but the psychoanalytic version seemed from her perspective to by make, by infantilizing that, by trying to understand it as a real symptom of a psychological disorder that you could like, you know, diagnose, it reduced the effect of the story massively. It took away its inherent horror and its, uh, its statement effectively, and made it into a different kind of story.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and this also, I think, kind of leads, links to um, one of her criticisms here, is uh, that she feels psychoanalysis has a kind of, like, uh, like, pseudo-scientific objectivity to it that she thinks is false. Mm-hmm. Um... Which, you know, that's an interesting perspective on psychoanalysis as a whole. But but I do think that it sounds like what she's responding to here, this, like, attempt to diagnose a fictional character, is a kind of uh, projection of, like, the hard sciences into literary criticism that doesn't necessarily make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's a direct example of the kind of uh, claims she's making in the previous essays. And so I think it was, it's... It's a very clean example of that kind of criticism, and how she uses it to intervene in uh, feminist literary discussion. Basically, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Do you want to discuss our other kind of example of how she applies her thought?
1: Absolutely. I just need to find it in the book. So this is (laughs) sorry. This is going
0: to be the last. uh, The last essay we talk about is recent feminist utopias. Um, which is kind of a, a survey of, you know, at the time of writing, um, which I think the time of writing for this essay is, what, 1981, or mm-hmm. at least time of publication. Um, so, so recent as of 1981.
1: Um, yep. And it's looking uh, back over a number uh, of books. Yes,
0: yeah, several. Uh, like, I think... Eight? Something like eight? Yeah, or... eight. I think it's eight. Many. Uh <laughs> including her. We can own count. Work, we know how to man. count. Well anyhow. Um <laughs> uh, Yeah, she discusses a total of eleven different works, all published in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um and uh fundamentally her analysis is about like comparing the um Comparing the narratives and also like the societies, the settings, um, the sort of the types of things that happen, the types of people that exist in the novels, she's talking about them on a very high level. Um not just novels, some of them are short stories. Um mm-hmm. and uh essentially like trying to trace um what you could call like new myth patterns in the way that she talks about them in the other essays.
1: Yeah, the, the thing is, hmm, I don't know if she's presenting them as like pr- creating new myths exactly, uh, but she's very interested in the mythic structures of the recent feminist utopia. I think the thing that I found really interesting is that she sort of talks about how these are relatively uh, governmentless, um, not explicitly anarchist except in the case of Le Guin's The Dispossessed, but uh that there's sort of family structures in the place of governments that these are often sort of separatist or women only uh, societies um, and that they often focus on saving young women from a uh, misogynist patriarchal society so that they can grow up in this freer society um, in various ways and that this is uh, these qualities are common to the women writers in the list, which is the the vast majority of them. I think only Delaney uh, is also mentioned, um, and she makes a very interesting argument that a lot of these are rather than these being like setting out a utopia in a schematic way, the way that um, you know Moore's Utopia, for example, does. These are much more reactive to what do women feel they need? What do all of these women authors? feel they need in society and are not getting and that these quality these shared qualities of these utopias represent those needs reactively rather and therefore not uh depicting sort of an idealized society just a better one and i think she specifically says i'm calling these utopias because they depict better societies in certain ways not perfect societies
0: yeah yeah i think that's all pretty accurate um yeah i think you know in a weird way um after discussing the other works in detail i'm not sure how much i have to say about recent feminist utopias because i think it really is um you know you can see this like emphasis on science fiction as the communal um and on science fiction as like the the um idea like as the, the idea is the kind of primary element of narrative rather than, like, character, per se. Yep. Um, Yeah, no. I am very interested... Sorry, go on? Sorry, go on. (laughs) No, you go on. Okay, I was just about to say, one thing that I do find interesting and maybe that I would push on a little bit in this essay is the way she talks about violence. Um, Because, uh, essentially, she says that... um, most of these utopian stories do not really involve violence. Um, but, like, then they all have this narrative of, like, rescue of the, like, abused female child. Yeah. Um,
1: and one So, of them, I mean, I
0: think what she... Sorry, go on. I think what she really means is that there isn't, like, on-screen hot war. That's um, generally true, but it's interesting, interesting because, like...
1: It's so an part interesting of that, I think, is, is that she compares it also violence, to the anti-feminist dystopias um. that she also wrote a piece about that appears in this book, uh, The Battle of the Sexes Science Fiction, Where a Matriarchal Society Must Be Overthrown by the One Cool Man, or whatever. But, uh, that, that article is just such a poison pen letter, it's, like, just intense, uh... She's not having it, is what I'd say, um, and she does some real, some really interesting psychoanalytics actually uh, to talk about uh, phallic symptoms in <laughs> those ones. Um, but the uh, the violence element is interesting in part because it's I think the kind of violence that she's talking about is like interpersonal and social and consistent. The societies imagined, especially the women only societies, are non-violent within themselves and they don't have people who uh like you know lash out or engage in domestic abuse basically and i think that that's more the violence she's talking about because a number of them have physical altercations with masculinist society or men doing violence to women who are not yet rescued
0: yeah no that's absolutely true but then I think also, like, if her claim is, well, these sort of all female societies are themselves nonviolent, well, I think that is typical of utopia in general, you know? Like, I think you could say that there's a critique of many utopias to be made where it's like, wh- what is the violence that this depends on? But there is an idea that within the society they're nonviolent, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think that's pretty common. I mean, yes. I don't think they d- distinguish from the classic utopia a ton in that respect. But I do think that, like, in terms of identifying the, like, social needs that these utopias express, pointing out that, like, one of them that I thought was really interesting was mobility is a big part of it. Women in these societies move around more or less freely. Uh, In fact, they often, um, the central governing sort of role is to assign jobs and find job openings where people want them, which is both a sort of, Vague science fictional socialism that you see a lot in stuff, but also, from her perspective, speaks to a desire for mobility. The idea that uh, women have to be careful about where they move and go in society. There is a threat of violence that shapes their decisions on how they can move around, visit, phys- like literally move around physically, and that the freedom of movement that appears in these stories is reflective of that restriction.
0: Yeah, I I think that's right. Like, I think her her fundamental argument about like, why these particular qualities in these utopias are produced and, like, what types of,
1: you know, social needs they reflect. I think that is, like, really spot on. Yeah. Um, And it leads to a really interesting paragraph, um, which compares Delaney's Triton to the other books. She, she says that Delaney's, like, one of the only male feminists to ever exist in this essay. Um, she's, she's pretty blunt (laughs) about that. Uh... But she does say that comparison of Triton with the other books is instructive. It seems to me that, for better or worse, the one male author in the group is writing from an implicit level of freedom that allows him to turn his attention, subtly but persistently, away from many of the questions that occupy the other writers. And part of the point of this is that Triton, the the genderless society Delaney represents, is a class society. It has a number of the structures of political uh i mean basically political coercion and oppression that are absent from the women-only societies of the other works in part because i mean effectively the argument is delaney has a bit more freedom not to just imagine a place where people can exist but rather well how could a genderless society be not ideal as well things like that
0: yeah i think that's true um So this is a place where you and I differed because I take this as a bit, uh, as a criticism of Delady, really. Um, a sort of sense of like, well, you don't have to think about these things that are actually very fundamental and Mm. like should be confronted in this fiction.
1: I, you know, I mean, I think that it's a, I don't think it's a criticism in part because there's not, it's not that she's identifying a trend of authors failing to recognize this stuff and she says for better or for worse and i think she means it genuinely that this allows delaney to approach different ideas that are maybe less from her perspective vital i think the the line here that's telling is uh trident makes a point of the financial discrimination suffered by children while the other authors are busy saving their children from solitary confinement uh madness rape and beatings or being chained for life so like the intensity of... Yes, that's the line that I I was assuming you were referring to as well. Triton is focusing on what I think she recognizes as genuine elements in society that matter, but does not shine a spotlight on what I think she would say is the most crucial element of a gender utopia or a feminist utopia. And I think that that is something she's ambiguous about. Like... Is she so devoted to the didacticism of science fiction that she thinks Triton is just failing? I, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, she chooses
0: to include it as, like, yes. fitting into this general category. and So clearly that itself is
1: it's a, it's a point in favor, yeah. And also, there's another book that she treats in the same way, and it's Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Yes, because the dispossessed is far more concerned with class than with gender. And she is willing to say that she thinks Le Guin is, you know, sort of reproduces a certain amount of heteronormativity because of, you know, Le Guin's own person. But she does also say that she thinks the intention is very clearly not that. But Le Guin is less focused on a feminist utopia, though she is a feminist, than on a, in, you know, an anarchist classless utopia in its depi- in the depiction of Anaris in the novel. And I think that's really interesting that Delaney and Le Guin are both to some extent se- uh, sort of separated out as not doing the same kind of thing as these other feminist utopias, even though they are recognized as feminist writing utopias.
0: I did not do this research before this, but it would be very interesting to look up how many of the authors
1: to whom she refers are lesbians and how many are not.
0: Um.
1: You know that is an interesting question. Uh she does uh say she does like uh discuss how there are six works in which the only sexuality portrayed is matter-of-factly lesbian as she puts it. Also she always le- capitalizes lesbian and I find that charming.
0: She doesn't always there are no. other essays where she doesn't but oh, yes but, but in this I one, I definitely in this one. Yes. No, it's I agree with you. It's it's charming. Um I'm I'm generally in favor if a person is like, hey, this oppressed group that I belong to, I am going to capitalize it. My broad opinion on that is, like,
1: cool. Yeah, no, I'm... Go uh, ahead. I'm certainly not complaining. Uh, I'll be honest, that makes a lot... That makes as much sense as my my assumption, which was uh, that it's because Lesbos is an island in Greece, and she's very, oh, like, literary. That could that could totally be it. It's as a proper well. noun.
0: I would 100% believe that. Yeah, no, I would uh, I now that you've said that, I'm like, "Oh wow, I bet that's it as well."
1: <laughs> what I'm saying is that I think Russ would find the uh the use of sapphic endearing.
0: Potentially, although
1: I no, she I don't she's a know, prickly person. Uh, as the well.
0: problem... Yeah, you're now asking me to consider what uh you're asking me on some level to consider what Joanna Russ would think about bisexual lesbians, and that's a terrifying prospect.
1: Oh, yeah, let's... let's. I, I can't even begin to comment on this area, so I'm going to move on. Yeah. Uh.
0: God. I need to finish The Female Man. The problem is that I... She, there's a bit in her essay where she talks about like a male reviewer referred to the female man as like a very violent book and like a, a scream of rage and she was like I don't know what you're talking about. There's like two scenes of violence in this book, and like she's correct about that, but at the same time, it is like a bracing, terrifying book. Uh, <sighs> it's it's just that the the terror the terror is the implicit, constantly present violence of of patriarchy and the sort of terrifying possibilities of that. Yeah. Um, very science fictionally. Right. Um, and so, uh, not defending this like clearly kind of piece of shit reviewer. Um, (laughs) but I, I do understand how one could read this book and just be like scared the whole time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, Oh, right. Uh, Also showing up in this is uh, Tiptree in these recent feminist utopias. And one of those stories is just not a utopia at all. It's, uh, I mean, or it's in a really weird relationship to the feminist utopia because it's a story of a woman in like a horrible near future patriarchal city uh, basically going mad and hallucinating that the world has been replaced with a women-only utopia of the type described in these, which ultimately leads her to being murdered in an alleyway because she can't see that the men around her are dangerous because she thinks they're women. And there is so much going on there. There's just so much going on there.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I would not straightforwardly have included that in a list of recent feminist utopias. Like, I would... I could see my... I, I can totally see analyzing it in the context of this because it's clearly responding yes. to this genre of yes. feminist utopia. But, um... Yeah, simply including it is a strange choice.
1: Uh, yeah, no, this... Uh, we're... Sorry, go on. Uh,
0: the, the story in question is, um... My sisters, oh, my sisters, your faces filled of light, right? That's what Yes. It's... Yes.
1: Your faces, oh, my sisters, your faces filled of light. That's the title of the story. Um... I, I'll be honest, I avoided the title because I couldn't remember the order of anything in it. Well, that's why I had to look in the book. Yep, yep, very fair. <sighs> so, and ultimately, this is this essay is arguing for the meaningfulness and usefulness of this genre. That it is a powerful genre. I mean, she wrote a book in it because she includes herself in the list of books. But um, also a basically an argument that the the ways this genre illuminates the things women need is a very powerful statement, and it is stated in a powerful way through science fiction. I, I don't think that's wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think that is, like, a basically
0: correct point. Um, it is very interesting that there's also in this, I think you mentioned this before, but there's also an essay in this about... Uh, the reverse... Like, yeah non-feminist stories about like female separatists or gender segregated societies
1: i mean and more specific um, this is um the essay is amor vincent fominam the battle of the sexes in science fiction and it's about like um stories in which there is some kind of evil matriarchal future society that is then attempting to oppress that is oppressing men and a man who stands up and usually defeats the evil society specifically by uh, seducing a woman into running away from it with him and or helping him topple it or whatever it's a she doesn't like these stories and they don't sound very good to me either yeah yeah no I, I wouldn't imagine they would be Um, again the only one actually amazingly there's only one author shared between the two um the two essays and it's tip tree yeah she does
0: talk (laughs) about a tip tree story in here
1: yes um and she basically says tip tree managed to write the arguably defensible version of this bad science fiction story and it's wild and the description of it is wild uh so like a lot going on there frankly Uh, mostly in the things she's talking about that she's ripping into with very good reason because they sound execrable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, no, and she applies the same sort of uh, myth structure analysis to it, again, this time in a very sort of uh, aggressive way to be like, okay, here's what they're afraid of by writing this story, here's what they're they're structuring it like, and here's why it's deeply incoherent, as opposed to the sort of coherent and human demands that are being made by the feminist utopias.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I think there is one line I want to quote from that essay in connection to the feminist utopia one, which is, uh, strikingly, None of these in no none of these books were I able to find envisioned a womanless world, or dared to say so, about half the feminist utopias matter of factly excluded men. So there's this idea of um one of the things going on here is that the uh the you know, masculinist anti utopias, the um the, the anti feminist dystopias can't act. can't imagine a male separatism can't imagine like here's what men would be able to do if they just took off and got got their own like sci-fi world and instead all of them are based on trying to bring women back into the control or circle of uh, patriarchal men into their quote-unquote natural or essential places which i think is a really meaningful analytical point about the difference between these genres that points to a really big and important feminist point. Yeah, no, she's she's definitely
0: correct about that. Um, God. Also, if you,
1: about about up... stories, yeah. just, if you want to hear about a bunch of real weird stories, yeah. Sorry? Just, if you want to hear about a bunch of real weird stories, that anti-feminist dystopia essay details a bunch of them. Yes, yes it does. Sorry, but you were saying? Oh, um... Yeah,
0: I was just about to say that now I'm thinking about the, there is a male separatist society in the female man, and it's bonkers. I mean, I imagine um. she set out
1: to do that. <laughs> yes, no, yeah, like, clearly. Yeah. Um. Um, but yeah, do we want to briefly, since we've got some time, go over some of the other essays just very much in brief? Like, what else is in here that we think is at least interesting for referencing
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, let's see. Uh, going through these, I mean... So, SF and technology is mystification.
1: We basically touched on that, Uh, I
0: think. Yeah, yeah. It has this huge central metaphor of, like, addiction and or diabetes that I think is very strange. Yeah. Uh, um, She wants... Yeah. Yeah. Um, she really wants to talk about, like about essentially, like, popular, like, uh, popular culture, you know, maybe even, like, junk culture. Um, yes. As opposed to more, you know, cerebral science fiction. Um, but she decides to use the metaphor of addiction it, for it, and I, I just don't even think it fits the point she's trying to make
1: very well, as addition to being, in addition to being kind of offensive. I mean, my comment on this is that this is a classic science fiction writer's mistake of thinking that a technical, chemical, uh, like, biochemical metaphor will make things more comprehensible. Like, that engaging with this highly technical scientific discourse, it's actually going to make your point stronger and smarter and better because you can point to a physical process that you understand in depth. And I think it really takes away from it.
0: Yes, yes, I think that's a good way of putting it.
1: Like the the core um, okay so we the core metaphor to be clear is uh, something like Star Wars provides an excess of like uh, enjoyment and intensity and like the feeling of ah this is something worthwhile but doesn't deliver the actual nutrients and meaningful stuff and that this also creates a taste for the like uh, the hyper um, energetic but not actually valuable science fiction or whatever over the actual conversation so effectively she's saying that like. Discussing technology is dessert, but you should really be eating your vegetables, which is discussing capitalism.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is more or less what she's saying. I, I <sighs> See, like, and you can hear in what Ben was just saying that there is this, like, central metaphor of, like, eating too much sugar yeah. and that making you sick. And it just, I don't know, it's very um, blaming people for their illness
1: kind of thing. I don't like it. Yeah, it's um, it's. It is not an apt metaphor, and it produces some real weird implications. Also, I just don't believe that
0: watching Star Wars rots your brain. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, I hope not.
0: Yeah, for my sake. fucking better not. <laughs> well, for everyone's sake, really, Yeah, that's at fair. this point. But, um, but uh, yeah, so then there's... We'd already talked about Amor Vinkit Foimanam. On the fascination of horror stories, including Lovecrafts, I just... I I said this before. I just think it's irresponsible to talk about Lovecraft in this really like glowing way. Like yeah. she she loves Lovecraft and she is talking about how like
1: she's I talking mean, about how cool cosmic horror is. We've all read this essay in a billion forms.
0: Yes, uh, like yeah. It's it's not very original and it I just don't think you should talk about Lovecraft that way. That's all. Um <sighs> Uh, chapter six is another, like, tearing a thing to pieces, but it's, um, it's called A Boy and His Dog, The Final Solution, which, uh, she's talking about a, a movie that does sound bad disturbing and misogynist. Oh, yeah, yeah so terrible this is, movie.
1: This is a famous, the, the story it's based on, Harlan Ellison's A Boy and His Dog, is like a famous, uh, science fiction work that has, um, gotten a lot of reactions, I'll put it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, like, some sort of awful, like, post-apocalypse thing, and it ends with a boy cooking his girlfriend
1: and feeding her to his dog. Yes. Th- that's That's basically the structure. And, like, she makes a, I'd say, a half-hearted defense of Ellison's story, because she's actually personal friends with Ellison at this time, is my basic read on this, that his is satire. His is taking the adventure stories, no girls allowed, uh, cool survival guy thing, and the way that the dog sort of stands in as the perfect partner. You know, man's best friend is a dog. What, not woman? Uh, and taking that to a science fictional extreme that, yeah, ends with cannibalism, murder, and, like in general, literally, I chose my psychic dog who who's just, like, my constant buddy over another human companion. And there's an argument for it, but much like there's an argument that the Cold Equations is doing something interesting while also being the Cold Equations about it, a boy and his dog cannot actually really get past the fact that it is gleefully feeding a woman to a dog in a post-apocalyptic wasteland.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I just... Oh, I don't
1: care for it. Um. Yeah, no, I mean, yes. This is also the one where um, one of the footnotes includes the phrase, uh, Samuel Delaney is one of the few male feminists I know who truly deserves the name, and he is a first-rate theoretical critic. So, you know, it's it's really nice to see that connection, but also uh, the fact that Ellison shows up and gets, like, mildly, like, justified, and then one of the footnotes says uh, very clearly that, Uh, when Delaney is referenced, that he is a male feminist, and no such claim was made about Ellison is um, telling.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, So yeah, that's
0: Uh, that one. (laughs) Um, So we did What Can Heroin Do? Somebody's Trying to Kill Me, and I Think It's My Husband, the Modern Gothic. This is an interesting essay to read, honestly, because it is about a literary genre that mostly doesn't exist anymore
1: yes i mean it it's it's it it does exist
0: a little but yes um so you know the modern gothic is a kind of a like predecessor to the modern romance novel um and obviously grew out of like the 19th century gothic but it's not the same thing as
1: yeah it's um, very much defined by books that want to be rebecca
0: yeah, but also, like, it, these are these are part of the paperback revolution. Yeah. So these are, you know, books that are being sold at the grocery store um, to, like, a huge swath of the American population, or rather, really, to a huge swath of, like, American women.
1: Yes. Um, and that's a large part of her interest uh, here, is that she's taking a critical feminist eye to a... Genre that is written mostly by women, mostly for women, in a modern context, and so exists alongside all of, like, I mean, all of her writing at this time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and she goes through and, like, uh, lists out all the kind of um, mythic archetypal figures in this. Uh, We've got the super male, the other woman, the buried ominous secret. Oh, the house. I should have started with the house. That's way more important than anything else.
1: The shadow male, Um, which is... Basically, the like, uh, the male who seems like the comfortable, reasonable choice, but is actually the murderer, whereas the super male is the dark, byronic hero who turns out to be totally okay, and you should marry him. Although, not always. Sometimes he is just evil. There's at least some of these stories where he's just a bad guy, and that's. Not many. Like, the super male is almost always, she points out, actually fine. It's that you marry yes. the shadow male first and then you have to flee to the super male. Mm-hmm. A- as a protagonist of one of these books. Yes.
0: Uh, and, um, like, there's
1: stylistic analysis as well as structural analysis. The end of the uh, essay is, like, an extensive series of quotations from these books to illustrate the different archetypes. Yes, there's an. it's an appendix. Yes.
0: Um, and she also kind of writes out a sort of, uh, like, um, you'd honestly call it, like, a kind of, uh, syllogism of, like, the the housewife who reads the modern gothic. Um, yeah. like, there's a, there's a list of the qualities that this figure, um, appreciates in, in the fantastic world of the gothic. Um, and then she translates it into kind of, like, the things that suck about this woman's life that are reasons that she wants to read the Gothic.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that's really interesting that ties this directly to uh, what can a heroine do, and in fact, she references what can a heroine do, is that these are stories with a female lead, with a heroine. But they're not a traditional love story because they're much more about the like dark doings around the woman, the, the Gothic elements. Uh, they're not about like a romance in the like Austinian sense where the two people are, you know, sort of trying each other out. They're not doing the love story. So while they may be inspired by Jane Eyre, they're not Jane Eyre and they're not, uh, a woman going mad or, they're not a detective story. They're not any of these other archetypes. And she ultimately argues that the modern Gothic is a story of a heroine who doesn't do anything. That she's a totally passive figure, and thus all of the forms of the modern Gothic are things that a passive heroine can take part in without having to act. Yes. Yes. Uh, and... That is... that is that. Yep. And like as adventure stories with a passive protagonist, they're sort of inherently paradoxical, which I think is a really cool analysis. I, I really recommend this story, even though it's not really about science fiction, even a little. Did I say yes. story? I an essay.
0: You did say story. Uh... Yeah. Um, then there's um, uh, To Write Like a Woman, Transformations of Identity in the Work of Willa Cather. Uh, this also, not even slightly about science fiction, because Willa Cather, not science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, um,
1: it is kind of... It's arguing that she was a closeted lesbian, um, and, like, that you can tell this through her work, I believe. Well, I think... Um, I mean, what it's arguing...
0: I feel like Willa Cather is one of those historical figures where she, like... Spent her life with women, but we forced oh, okay. to admit she's a lesbian. Like, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So closeted only in a technical and historic like sense, right? Yes, I
0: I believe this is the case. I really don't know very much about Willa Cather. I'll be honest;
1: she is a writer I know entirely through this essay. So, from my perspective, well, um, she's very clearly a lesbian. <laughs> uh, uh, yes,
0: she's she is she is certainly like I. I don't remember the details of this, but what I can tell you is she's, it's, it's not one of those things, this is based on relationships she had with women in her life that people are saying might be
1: lesbian. Yes. Um. Uh, but, so it's, it's an analysis of her works through a certain lens that's like, the relationships in her works make sense if you think about them through, uh, a lesbian mode of desire rather than... Her male protagonists who are interested in women acting like men in patriarchy like there's a lot of stuff about a lack of entitlement in how they act that speaks to them being basically veiled inserts of a lesbian hero rather than a um you know a man lesbian heroine i guess in uh russ's terms
0: yes yep
1: and i think there's only two essays left
0: yeah, so there's um, the one on Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, which was an introduction to a collection of Shelley's work, which is uh, very critical. Contentious <laughs> Yeah, she's like, she recognizes Frankenstein as the first science fiction novel and like hails that as a monumental, uh, you know, achievement. But she's also like, very critical of basically all of Shelley's other work and, and doesn't think Frankenstein is a Yes. Yeah, doesn't think Frankenstein is a good novel.
1: Yeah, the the core thesis she puts forward is that Shelley is not a critical feminist like her mother, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, but is instead an escapist, first and foremost, that she wanted to Uh, direct her imagination out and away from the circumstances that, you know, feminism might comment on, and so that is why she is such a uh, powerfully uh, rendered fantasist, but also why her fantasies cannot actually grip reality, except that, you know, she happened to invent science fiction, which allowed for one of her works to get beyond that and produce this sort of fantastical but powerful figure. And I disagree strongly a lot yeah and, um, no
0: i yeah i do too <laughs> i um,
1: i don't want this to just turn into a, a you know an extended session of explaining why mary shelley is super cool actually um but i do think that this has a certain degree of i mean basically declaring that the romantics were not political and that like the Byron Shelley other Shelley and by other Shelley I always mean Percy sorry romanticists um like that their collection of people was in fact deeply apolitical wasn't interested in reimagining uh gender relations whereas I think it's fair to say that they did try a number of these things they weren't great at it because they were a bunch of rich people in the early or uh The bunch of the children of rich people, I think, is more technically accurate. In the early 1800s, writing poetry, but, like, you know, there's a whole thing in um, Frankenstein. Just very, very briefly. There's a whole thing about the justice system being broken, and the fact that people, uh, even murderers, are products of their society, and that the forces around them create crime, and that we shouldn't be treating people as subhuman for being criminals, which is to some extent weakened, yes, by the fact that the person this is being put in defense of was framed for murder by the creature. But the irony that I think Shelley fully intended, given that she was friends with a bunch of judicial reformers who held this position about actual murderers, is that the argument applies to the creature as well. The creature, through socialization and context, was made evil, was made a murderer, and thus should not just be understood as inherently foul. And I think that that entire sort of position, that social claim, is being completely erased from Shelley's work by Russ's particular perspective on it.
0: Yeah, I. Sorry, I basically agree. No, it's okay. I just I knew you were gonna do this because I knew that you had these strong feelings, and I am, I you know. Um, you were very kind. <laughs> Yeah, I I also just I do feel on some level that um Frankenstein and Mary Shelley don't super need our defense. That's
1: fair. Um, That's fair.
0: But no, I get it. <laughs> uh and then the last essay here that we haven't talked about is um is smashing erotic, which is a direct response to someone else's essay um which seems to have been basically arguing about a number of like 19th century uh women that they had, like, talking about their, like, important, uh, you know, kind of relationships with other women, uh, but arguing that it is, like, I don't know, basically inappropriate to label them lesbian. Um, And it is basically her arguing, like, I would include these women under lesbians, and I don't think that calling them lesbians, like, has to mean that they were having, like, genital sex with each other Mm -hmm.
1: um yeah it's it's very classically 70s feminist uh arguments well
0: specifically 70s lesbian feminists yes uh for sure because this is she's basically yeah she's basically trying to defend herself against a kind of like not defend herself but defend the 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 ability to like look back in time and uh point out people as lesbians Mm -hmm. um
1: there is actually one it's... more essay. Sorry, go on. Well, what did, what did I miss? Uh, letter to Susan Koppelman. Oh, I felt that we had talked about that. Uh, oh, I guess we yes. didn't know you're right. We did. Re... You're right. We referenced it. Uh, we don't need to go in depth. It's her being real mad at uh, academic jargon and what she sees as. I, I mean, the same thing referenced in the yellow wallpaper essay.
0: Yes, but she's doing it about a fucking grad student's essay. yeah, it's, it's really it's, look overkill it's a letter It's a letter she wrote to someone else, and I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to mock a bad grad essay in a private letter. Publishing uh, it was I'll, maybe a bit she, much. Yes, she does censor the grad student's name, which was but.
1: nice of her uh, uh, more I don't think morally it's enough. necessary, yes. Yeah. It's it's just rude. But yeah. she's
0: clearly not afraid of being rude.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's more or less why I wanted to reference this one is just it gives you a sense for the um the punchiness of Joanna Russ. Yeah. Yeah, no,
0: that's uh that's very fair. <laughs> oh.
1: Um Well are you about ready to uh Call it a day with this? Yeah. I, I did want to, I guess, very briefly say, and very, very briefly, is just that, uh, you know, I think it's cool that the works we've been doing have looked at various trends or sort of flavors of science fiction criticism, and, the, you know, we intend to keep doing that. And I think it is worth thinking about feminist science fiction criticism as a particular tradition of science fiction criticism that, uh, I mean, first of all, has a long history, but... Uh, that does have like major figures in it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, I uh, definitely wanted to make sure that we read some, you know, feminist criticism early on, and I want to make sure that that continues to be the case. And also, you know, um, there's a huge number of other, uh, I would say, like important strain important strains of uh, science fiction criticism from you know as 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 Russ put it herself in one of these essays, people who have like historically had their voices suppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope that will be something we continue to focus on. Yep. Um, it can be harder to research. That uh, is true than other things. So we'll we'll try to put in that effort. Yep. Um, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, overall, I well, think... I haven't. Sorry, go on. I I have a an idea for a, a sign off, which uh, is just that there's a. A line from this that I was thinking we could read, which I think is like a fun, fun little sum up of one way of looking at what's important about science fiction.
1: Where is it? Um,
0: which is, this is, uh, this is just, we already talked about this. This is from Towards an Aesthetic of Science Fiction. Uh, All of us willy-nilly must live as if we believed the, bod- the body of modern science were true. Uh, so... Wherever you are out there, do your best to live as if you (laughs) believed the body of modern
1: science were true. I mean I don't think we get a choice. Like that's That's my my thing. That's my joke. Sorry. I was supposed to just say the buttons
0: in the F podcast.